0: This is Larry Lessig. Every good idea needs to be tested. That's an uncomfortable truth, especially for academics, especially for legal academics, because testing is hard, or better, testing well is hard. It's easy to have a theory about how things will work out. It's hard to work out whether that's in fact how things work. And that's true about even the most obvious ideas, like vouchers in particular, or small-dollar public funding in general. It's easy to identify the obvious good that would come from, say, small-dollar public funding, let's say through matching funds. With matching funds, the government gives a campaign a multiple of the amount the campaign has raised in small-dollar contributions. So if the match is six to one, the campaign raises $100, the government would give the campaign another $600. And that means the $100 is actually worth $700 to the campaign. Now, obviously, that system makes it easier for campaigns to raise money in small-dollar amounts. And obviously, that means that more people can contribute to campaigns, making the few large funders, what I called in the last episode, the tweeds, less significant. Okay, but less obvious is how that change in the mix of contributions changes the overall influence of the money. What if the small-dollar contributors are more polarized or more partisan than the big money it replaces? Does that make our politics more polarized? Okay, so some think so. I'm not convinced, but certainly there are prominent and respected academics who think so. But my objective here is not to resolve that point. It's instead to use that question to underline an obvious and critical point. Reform happens within a system, and that system has lots of moving parts, and shifting one part could easily affect others. And what we need to do is to step back and evaluate how the reform we're talking about affects the system overall. And that's what we need to do with vouchers. Because vouchers are an innovation that has not been tested widely in many different political contexts, so we should begin to see what we have learned from the one important context in which it has been tried, and that's Seattle. By far, the academic who's doing the most to study this carefully is a professor at Stony Brook University, Jennifer Herwig. Jennifer was a graduate of NYU, bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. I met her when she joined the Safra Center to be a postdoc between 2013 and 2014. And since 2014, she's taught at Stony Brook, but she has conducted a very Careful, extensive analysis about how the voucher program, which Seattle embraced, has worked, what it's done, what the effect has been on how people participate in the democracy of Seattle. And in this conversation, we'll talk about how vouchers have mattered and what they've done to change the way democracy in Seattle works as a way to think about how they might matter more generally or nationally. Stay tuned. So Jennifer, thank you so much for talking to us about the question of vouchers. But I want to start by thinking about the question of participation in democracy more generally. And if we think about how we participate in democracy, what you've emphasized in this couple chapters that I've seen is that the obvious way people participate, namely by voting, um, is not the only or most important way, potentially. People also participate through activism. They rally people to come out and to vote or to come to political meetings. And they also participate through funding. And I think it's really valuable to start with material you've got about just how unequal the participation among these three, or let's just simplify it, two of them, voting and funding is, and how different the public seems if you look at it from the perspective of voting and of funding. So why don't you begin by helping us understand that a bit?
1: So yes, campaign donors versus voters. Voting is the most common form of political participation. Um, lots American, of Americans do it, probably not as many as we would hope. Um, but nonetheless it's the most common form of participation. And if you look at voters, they 're not perfectly representative of the American population, but they 're pretty close, right They look at look like Americans in general. Um, Campaign donors and campaign donations, on the other hand, are a form of participation that a very narrow slice of the population um, takes part in. We know that the people who do this form of participation look a lot different than the American population and they look a lot different from American voters. And this is striking because we know that campaign donations are a really important form of participation, right? It's um, voting is is participation and it's important. But campaign donations have this added layer of they're not only just participation, they're a form of political influence. Um, And we know from surveys of donors and from uh, interview studies and just anecdotally from folks who have served in Congress that if you're somebody who is making donations all the time, you're making big donations, you have a kind of level of access and, and leverage that ordinary voters don't, that I don't as a constituent who refuses to give money, Um, and it it creates all kinds of uh, gaping kind of inequalities in the political system. Um, And I think one of the things that I always try to emphasize to folks who don't study this is just how tiny the population of donors is, right? I think that folks think because small donations have become more common, that it's it's a huge slice of the American population. And it's true that more Americans have been making small donations. But if you look at people who are making significant donations that are really, really matter to campaigns, it's 1% of the population, of the adult population, um, and, and some in some contexts, even less than that. Um, so it's a very, it's a minority form of participation, and it's a really important one.
0: Yeah, so you quote, the Center for Responsive Politics in 2022, which said that in 2018, 0.47 percent, so that's less than one percent, less than one half of one percent of the American population gave $200 or more to federal political committees. And that constituted 71 percent of total funds raised by those committees. Um, And to emphasize your point about small dollars, you say, quote, candidates receive a paltry 10% of their funds from small donors and over 50% from larger donors, giving more than $200. So this gap, as you put it, is quite pronounced. And one way I like to think about it, though, is just what does it mean to our politicians? So you could say our politicians are obviously dependent on voters, like they're not going to get to office unless they're voted in by a plurality in their district. So there's a very tight dependency to the people through voter voting. But they're also not going to get to office unless they raise money. They're dependent on funders. Um, and the interaction between those two dependencies is quite perverse, because obviously, if you got to please the funders just to be a candidate, the funders have already filtered out a whole bunch of people who, you know, just can't be candidates um, because they're not going to raise the money or the big money that they need to get in. So this dual dependency is incredibly distortive because of uh, these two ways in which people represent. And and that makes really important the contribution that you're you know, talking about, we're going to get to in a second, of this different way of funding campaigns, because in principle, that can reduce that gap. Um, but let's, that's getting ahead of the story But um, Okay, so, so we have these different ways of participating. The one very important way we're gonna focus on now is, is funding campaigns. We have a system of private funding, and uh, that private funding we've already, you, you have this nice word that donor it, um meaning the people who are donating, donating, the donorates are not representative of the people. We get it. And you also talk about access. So how do we know how uh, how it matters to access?
1: Yeah. This is one of my favorite uh, kind of talking points when I teach this to my undergraduates, um, because now uh, we rarely in social science have evidence that comes in in many different forms and shows the same thing. Um, And in terms of contributions buying access, now we have that kind of layered knowledge um, information about uh, how contributions buy access. So one way we know is as I said, interview studies that sociologists have been doing for a long time, talking to folks who run, let's say, political action committees, talking to political candidates. um, And they will tell you, um, quite frankly, like, look, I talk to my donors more often, right? Um, And they can be pretty frank. We also know it from surveys um, of political donors that uh, donors who are uh, more active, they give uh, more frequently over time, are more likely to say, yeah, I I know my representative. I know my senator, of course. Why do you think I'm giving money? Um, And then the final way that we know um, about this relationship, and this is kind of the the gold standard in social science today, um, is through uh, a randomized experiment of representatives. Um, These two very enterprising researchers uh, sent out, I believe it was email solicitations, asking members of Congress, like, hey, can I talk to you about it was a very particular issue. In one solicitation, they were uh, framed as donors, and in another, they were framed as constituents. And what do you know? And the donor can condition we get much higher rates of access to chiefs of staff, the actual representative and just staff in the in the representatives uh, office down the line. Um, so there are lots of different kind of pieces of evidence now that have accumulated and I think we're we're kind of agreed at this point that if nothing else, money is generating access.
0: Yeah, m- much more uh, you, you say actually five times more likely to offer a meeting with senior staff than to a non-donating constituent, which obviously is the game then, especially if you're in a business, an industry that requires ongoing relationships with the government. You got to buy it. You got to buy access. Um, And once again, that emphasizes the deep inequality in the way in which the system actually manifests representativeness inside of the system. Now, we have in our private funding system um, a number of different ways in which candidates raise money. So what are the big ones that you think are most significant here? <laughs>
1: uh, it changes, it changes by the day. <laughs> but, hmm. um, at the the moment, um, for a long time, it's been individual donations, individual donors are really the heart of the, the money that candidates themselves um, are getting for their campaigns. And in particular, even though we hear lots and lots about small donors, who, which again, are important and have become more important, Um, It's really these donors who are giving larger amounts of money, over $200, which we call itemized contributions. They are like the lifeblood of the federal system. Candidates get much more money from these like significant donors who are making larger donations than they do from from small donors. There are outlier candidates like AOC, right, who gets uh, all of her money from small donors, but they are really the minority. And if you look at kind of the distribution of where the money is coming from, it's these larger donors. So individual donors who are giving big amounts are really the the heart of the system. And then we also have political action committees um, who represent uh, corporate interests, labor unions, um, other kind of ideological interest groups. Um, and they have actually become uh, less important over time and individuals have become more important in the federal system, which is kind of an interesting thing that um, – Individuals like you and me are becoming more and more central to how campaigns are financing their elections. So, it's individuals; it's people like you and me, not like me, because uh, I don't give money, <laughs> but other
0: people, less yeah, ethical um, people. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, we're not going to get too judgmental here. For okay, sorry. Moment, but, right. but um, so, uh, and what's significant about the difference between them is that there's been a lot of work trying to measure uh, the kind of influence the different types of donations represent. Um, And one interesting counterintuitive fact is that the PAC donations, mainly from corporations, but as you say, labor unions also do PAC uh, donations, are the more centrist or the more moderate uh, influence in the political system. Small donors, uh, there's a lot of growth in um, extreme small donors. Um, These are people more typically engaged. It's, It's hard to measure, I think, large donors directly. I don't really know much work about that. But all of these are people are giving money to a candidate directly. That's not necessarily the most important in many races, uh, political money that there is. Right. So in addition to that, what is the other what are the other big players in like campaign money?
1: Yeah. Well, Post Citizens United, it's now super PACs. Um, There was a kind of a murky period um, in the early 2000s where there were other kind of dark money nonprofit groups that were playing a role. Um, Now it's really these independent expenditure only committees that have come on the scene. And essentially, these are political committees that can accept unlimited contributions, not only from individuals, which there are a lot of billionaires running around who like to do this, um, but also from corporations. Um, and that, that was kind of the, the crux of the Citizens United decision was giving corporations the right to also make these kinds of um, ind- independent expenditures. Um, so now if you look at competitive races and national elections, uh, no surprise, you see a lot of super PAC um, activity there. Um, they are financed by very, very large donations. We're talking millions and millions of dollars that are coming from, let's say, single individuals or from single Corporate entities, although lo- less so than individuals, um, and in some cases they actually swamp the spending of the candidate campaign itself, um, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, the asterisk there is that super PACs are um, at least nominally uncoordinated uh, uh, campaigns, so they're not they're not supposed to coordinate their activity with with candidate campaigns. We know that that's that's not actually how it plays out, but. Um, letter of the law is that they are uncoordinated. They are doing these things independent of a candidate's actual campaign.
0: Yeah, the things that they're doing that have to be independent is the uh, expenditures. They're not allowed to coordinate right. their messaging. <laughs> but in fact, they do lots of coordinating of fundraising. They can do. They can have the candidate show up at a fundraising event where they raise millions of dollars, unlimited contributions. So the line is very murky, um, but there's a kind of important qualification that people listening to this series will kind of be, obs- uh, have heard me focus on obsessively, between Citizens United and a case by the D.C. Circuit a couple months afterwards called Speech Now. Because all Citizens United says is, yes, if you're spending independently, you can spend unlimited amounts of money, corporations, unions, adding on to what Buckley had said in 1976, individuals. Then it made sense that, uh, political action committees that were independent could also spend unlimited amounts of money. But that left open the question, how do they raise their money? And what um, what speech now said is that if spending independently is not constitutionally regulable, it follows as a matter of logic that fundraising to independent political action committees also cannot uh, trigger quid pro quo corruption and therefore also cannot be regulated. That step um, is a logical mistake, and it's astonishing. Thirteen years after, we still have not corrected that logical mistake. But, um, but that's the thing that created super PACs because it was speech now that then led the FEC to say, "Okay, here's a simple way to have these really monster committees." Okay, so we have a private system; it creates all sorts of unrepresentative representative democracy, and obviously, then for fifty years at least, we've seen major innovations. At the federal level and at the state level, to try to build alternatives to the system. The very first federal major innovation in funding was the um, was the law in the in the early 70s that gave us um, uh, presidential public funding. It didn't include correct congressional public funding, although it came very close. Um, and that was upheld as public funding by the Supreme Court in Buckley v. Vallejo. Um, but you have a really wonderful arc and explanation of like the evolution of these alternative forms that leads to the one that I hope we, we're going to spend most of our time talking about. But walk us through how these alternatives developed and some faded and others have come in, in their place.
1: Yeah. Well, um, certainly you are right in pointing to the FICA in the 1970s, creating the presidential system. Um, But then post-1970s, where we see the most movement in terms of public campaign financing is actually at the state level. Um, And at the state level, there's been an interesting evolution from, um, I would say, the popularity of the grants-based systems coming first in the kind of order of succession.
0: Like the presidential system.
1: Like the presidential, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a matching component there too, but yeah, it was right. kind of hybrid. Um, then the matching um, systems coming into place. Um, and now potentially voucher systems catching on. So um, chronologically, the grants-based systems, uh, states like Connecticut and Maine are clean election states. And essentially what those systems do is um, they have either partial or full funding for candidates in, in, in state elections. After a candidate qualifies, the state gives that candidate a lump sum of money to run their campaign. Right. Um, so it could be, you know, half of what their expenses will be or whatever the full um, anticipated spending cap will be. Um, and those are grants based systems. Baked into a grants-based system, however, is a complete kind of divorce of public campaign financing from any form of participation or interaction with constituents, right? You qualify, let's say you collect signatures, small-dollar donations, and then you get public money and essentially you're off off the hook. (laughs) Matching systems do incentivize participation um, of voters and, of course, of candidates um, soliciting those uh, contributions. Matching systems, probably the most well-known one is the one in New York City where I live, um, where candidates for our city offices can participate in a matching system. And the way that works is you get a private contribution up to a certain limit, and then it is multiplied by um, public money. So there's some kind of matching um, multiplier in a matching system that Supplements a private contribution with public money, so in in essence, it's magnifying the impact of these smaller donations. That's a kind of system that New York City has. They were very popular for a long time. Actually, they've been passed in and some other municipalities around the country. Um, more recently, like Mon- Montgomery County. Third type of public campaign finance system that um, I've probably spent the most time studying now, um, is this voucher system, Um, system of, I don't know, you could call it vouchers or democracy dollars. Um, And that system is really interesting because it takes out the private contribution component of the matching system and puts publicly funded vouchers or democracy dollars in the hands of voters that they can then allocate to uh, candidates that are running in Whatever race is eligible for that uh, form of funding, um, so it's a a novel form of public campaign financing. It's one that I know you know a lot about, as one of the, the people who thought who thought up the kind of architecture of these kinds of programs.
0: Okay, but let's. Uh, I and mean, we're going to talk about that right now. But let's just make sure we understand the relationship between um, what vouchers might be and and at least matching funds. I think your point about clean elections is exactly right. It doesn't require any participation. The other big vulnerability to clean elections has is that it depends mm. upon ongoing desire of the legislature to fund it at the level necessary. Yes. So yes. Connecticut, I, I've spoken to legislators. I went and spoke to a bunch of Democratic there. legislators there. And they love the system because it basically means at a certain point they stop fundraising and nobody right. really likes to be fundraising. Yeah, But the problem is that they don't fund enough, so they increasingly depend on outside funding or people have to opt out of the system just to be able to be competitive. So if you think, is it likely the legislature is going to fund funding for uh, elections over schools or over roads, the answer is no. So it's strategically um, probably not the wisest move to make sure that we continue to have relative independence. The interesting question about matching funds is how close it gets to our idea of um, representativeness. So uh, Malbin has done most of the work here to try to convince us that they are great systems and they actually do work. And you quote him uh, him and Parrott saying um, that uh, New York City's model, quote, almost perfectly reflects the city's diversity as a whole. Although um, you say the authors stopped short of describing the characteristics of individual donors participating in the program. I wonder when you look at that system with the perspective that you've developed in the context of your understanding of vouchers, what are the weakest parts of what would be the arguments you would advance to uh, against the idea of matching over something else?
1: I mean, I think that the obvious one is um, <laughs> even to make a matchable contribution, you have to have some extra money lying around, right? Um, and for a lot of people, that's doable. But for a whole lot of Americans, it's not. Um, so even under a matching system, you're going to leave out a portion of the population that typically has less political voice anyhow. Um the matching system in New York City, um, Melbourne's work is is great. Um, we actually haven't gotten the kind of individual level analysis of how donors and matching programs compare to donors and voucher systems. Um, I suspect. That even though we have good geographic representation in matching systems, um, we're not going to have the same kind of explosion and participation by people who are traditionally kind of priced out of private funding that we have with vouchers. So the matching system sort of bakes in some inequality automatically because you have to have the money to participate uh, in the matching program to actually be a player. The other thing I would say here, and one thing that I've been thinking more about, is... A matching system, right, can accommodate a a candidate who already has an established donor network. Right. It doesn't necessarily force candidates to go out and make new contacts and talk to their constituents and bring in new actually new people into the, you know, Local political system and a matching system. You can you can still go through your Rolodex, and people don't have those anymore. But you can still go through your iPhone and say, like, you know, uh, this person I work with ten years ago. I wonder if they'll give me a contribution. So, in other words, it doesn't disrupt the networks of donor that we know that candidates have um, with donors in a way that a voucher system might, because you can you can rely on the same kinds of people, actually the same people, in a matching system. Um, And instead of them giving you two hundred and fifty dollars and it being worth two hundred and fifty dollars, now it's multiplied and worth thousands of dollars. Right. Um, So I think that it just it doesn't necessarily have the same impact at disrupting the kinds of people in terms of demographics, but also the kinds of people in terms of the repeat, the frequent donors who are giving over and over in these elections and already have access and already know the people who are running for office and running the running the show.
0: Right. And one flaw we see in the current system of representation or the candidates who get to be representatives is that it's the kind of people who are plugged into these networks of power that are more likely to be able to raise money. Um, So, you know, a lot of white men lawyers are in a great place to raise tons of money because they've had tons of clients and they can call all of them and they're all going to give a bunch of money. But you know, if you've been a school teacher or you know you've not been uh, you've been a stay at home mom or something like that, and now think it's time for you, it's time for you to get in, you just don't have the starting uh, resource um, that's not tangible money that you've earned but connections that are it's worth money, so it doesn't solve that problem either and we should flag although I'll just note i don't know what the answer to this is we should also flag that there's one concern about um Voucher about uh, matching fund systems and as a as a version of small dollar funding systems that it might exacerbate polarization. Now, some of the people I respect most in this field, including Malvin, um, say that's not true. Um, that there's no good evidence of that. So we don't know whether it's true or not. But it's one thing to consider who is who are we uh, incentivizing uh, to be included in the system? And if we know, because we do know this, that the most extreme. People in our political system are actually also the most engaged. They're kind of low-hanging fruit for raising money in this. And if we don't have a good way to get a bunch of other people into the system, it, it's it's conceivable it creates that kind of distorting effect. Okay, which brings us to vouchers. All right. Now, we we also I have also spoken here to Alan uh, Derning, who's obviously pretty critical in this story. I'm not quite sure yet whether he's going to go before you or after you in this in this con- series of conversations. So I'm not going to make too much depend upon it. But obviously, he was at the core of the policy innovation process that got Seattle vouchers. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about that here. But I do want to rely on you, who's independent of the process, so you've been observing it from the outside, not as somebody who built it, um, to just help us understand the elements and what we now know about what that system has done. So let's just start with the basic structure and demographics of what the problem, what vouchers in Seattle are trying to do.
1: Yeah. So like a democracy dollar system, the voucher system in Seattle took this idea of putting public monies for local elections, so city elections, in the hands of voters um, and the way that it works in Seattle is every registered slash active voter in Seattle receives these four25 um, democracy vouchers at the beginning of a local election cycle um, so Seattle's actually having a local election uh, for districted city council seats now in 2023 so every all registered voters in Seattle got their packet of four25 vouchers um, and the hope of the program, is that by giving people this money that they can use to uh, support local candidates running for city council, city attorney, and mayor now, um, that the program will uh, increase participation and campaign funding, um, number one. Number two, that In increasing participation, we're not just increasing participation among the same kinds of people that we know make private contributions, but among folks who typically are, I use the term in the book, priced out of making a campaign contribution. So these are folks who are lower income, um, people of color, uh, the racial disparities in, in campaign contributions are like mind blowing, lower income and younger folks, right? Primarily. Um, and so the hope was not only that we're going to increase participation, we're going to increase participation among people who typically don't have a voice in this form of participation. Um, and then as kind of a ancillary benefit or effect of the program, right, these public money should allow people without this law, long list of contacts from, you know, being a white lawyer um, to run for, for office, for local office. So it's going to make Um, The candidate pool, wider, it's going to make the candidate pool more diverse. And at the same time, it's also going to widen the field of people who are financing elections. And down the line, they're only, um, I guess this is the fourth cycle that they're using the program. Down the line, this, if our theories are correct as social scientists, this should translate into better policy outcomes. In other words, that people have more voice, average voters are getting more voice. We should get better, better policy for all kinds of folks in Seattle.
0: So one thing that I hadn't known until I, I hadn't thought about to think about this as a problem before I read what you've sent me is um, the real cost of um, of getting votes in these local elections. Um, you, you described city council member represents 100,000 people, which is <laughs> yeah. pretty big. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of people. I mean, a congressperson only represents 750,000 or something. Yeah. So it's a lot, lot, lot of people. But the v- level of participation in elections is extremely low. So the actual cost per vote for these local races is much, much higher than the cost per vote for uh, U.S. House race or U.S. Senate race, which makes the funding problem even more perverse because now you're even more dependent on, if in, in a privately funded system, on outside money, money from interested people to be elected because you just know how expensive it is to... To to make the system work. Um, so we've we've had three good we've had three cycles. We're in the fourth right now. <clears throat> You're writing maps three conclusions that I think it's uh, really useful to put on the table, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to quote them right now because I think you state them very clearly. Uh, and then there are a couple others that I'm I, I thought I knew was true, but I but this part of your book that I've seen uh, doesn't talk about. So um, the f- first one you say is we find within the three election cycles. The democracy voucher program transformed participation in the funding of local elections. Compared to donor participation in the elections prior to the implementation of the program, More Seattle residents are engaging in the campaign finance system, and Seattle now has one of the highest contributor rates in local elections across the nation. This new broader base of financial support has simultaneously enabled a much wider field of candidates in local races too. Um, So that's point number one. Point number two Another point that I just hadn't thought about, but I think it's really interesting. Second, we explore the ways in which the program has renewed the pool of participants in local elections. So renewed in the sense of you see new people entering into the process of funding that hadn't been funding before. Um, And then the third point that um, you emphasize here, that third, by providing public monies to average voters, The program has also significantly increased the representation of people of color, younger and less affluent voters, broadening the base of support for local candidates. Perhaps as a consequence, the local representatives are now, on average, significantly younger, include more women and a higher proportion of people of color. And then altogether, you say, when participation is more equitable across groups, the evidence suggests that cities are more likely to have governing bodies that look like them, and to implement policies that reflect the preferences and needs of those diverse um, constituencies. Um, And so all three of these in some sense would have been imaginable at the time that the program was adopted, but which of these do you think surprised people the most or that they hadn't really, the kind of extra benefits to the system that they hadn't thought about before?
1: That's interesting. So (laughs) I'll answer it in two ways. Um, When you talk to to just like average folks about the program, the the thing, the single fact that people really kind of glom onto in a way that I always find surprising is just the explosion in participation. Because people, A, don't recognize how low participation in this form of elections is to begin with. And then to say, and now Seattle's almost at 10 percent, people go like, oh, you know, like a light bulb goes off that there's that this inequity is so baked into our system and it's kind of invisible. So average folks, I think, um, really react to the explosion and participation that we've seen in Seattle. Inside Seattle, I think they, um, so of course the people who run the program are hoping that, the participants would be more representative. I think the thing that will be most surprising to people who are actually in the mix is this this element of renewal, right? That I, and you know I think it's a good thing because we know that people who give campaign contributions tend to do so kind of repeatedly over time, and that has certain implications. It could also look at you know half uh, glass half full half empty. The the kind of downside of this is that um, every election cycle, what we're seeing in Seattle is that the people who are using vouchers are new, right? So people give their vouchers in one cycle and then perhaps they don't participate again. Now, of course, we're only four cycles in, so this will change as the program matures. But essentially, there's a lot of kind of movement and fluidity in who's participating in elections. Um, Voucher users are not the same People each and every cycle, we're bringing in new people into the system um, every time the voucher program is used, and the cash donors who were giving money before the program started um, are—you know—some of them are still giving, and some of them are using vouchers instead of their own money. Um, But they're they're a tiny percentage of of the people who are funding elections now. So this is really like these are new folks. These are not the same people who are financing elections before the program. Um, I think, you know, that from a candidate perspective is is really interesting. That means that candidates are going out there and I don't know if they're talking to them at length, but they're they're having some sort of an interaction or some kind of a relationship with their constituents, types of constituents that they didn't have before. I think that's a really interesting um, thing that's come out of this work, especially because you could imagine it, Imagine it going a different way, right? When I looked at the numbers, I was actually surprised that there was, at this point, little persistence in voucher usage over time. I would have kind of expected that people just keep, you know, keep doing what they're doing, but it's so far not the case.
0: And do we have anybody who's trying to understand why people will use them in one year and not use them in another year? Have there been efforts to follow <laughs> up and survey?
1: Uh, I mean, I... I i don 't think so, I think at this point it would I, it would have to be me. I would have to go out there and and talk I would have to go out there and ask people. My sense is that it there 'll probably be a cyclical pattern that will emerge after we see the the program go through several more cycles where like the same kinds of people or same people are being brought in by let's say mayoral elections. Um, People are maybe more inclined to uh, be involved in the districted elections. And at the end of the day, this is a young program. So it's hard to say like what this is gonna look like hopefully if it's reauthorized in 10 or 15 years. Um, My sense is that because there's so much churn not only in who's financing Elections, but we have so many more candidates now that uh, people are being brought in because they're really uh, they're really psyched about one particular person who's running in their district, or they're really excited about this one mayoral candidate. And then the next cycle, there's just not someone who kind of piques their interest in the same way. So hopefully, we'll get a better, better sense of that as the program matures.
0: Does the program? Uh, give or make available the list of who's used vouchers in the past to candidates or to political parties?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, we can track them over. And if, in fact, if this is a something that I'm going to add to the, the chapter that's not in the version you saw, um, which essentially shows that the plurality of voucher users have only participated in one cycle. Right. So less persistence um, in voucher usage than I may have anticipated going into it. Right. Um, we don't see like a very large portion of voucher users that gave in all three cycles conti- uh, continuously.
0: Right. But I mean, so does the Democratic Party have access to a list of who used vouchers? Yeah, it's all publicly re- available. And so yeah. they have a way to reach out to them and say, you funded last time, make sure you yeah. fund again. Um, but they haven't done that.
1: Uh, I mean, actually, that's one of the things that I'm writing about right now is the use of data and campaigning and how that sometimes can kind of subvert the uh, intent of the program because candidates have a list of people that are um, likely to participate, likely to vote, likely to give a voucher. And if you're only targeting those people, you know, that kind of replicates the dynamics of of a hard money system. Um, So I assume that they are doing that. Um, Why we're not seeing more persistence yet, again, is I think is has to do with the kinds of uh, right. So the the first round of the program was featured these two at large city council seats and the city attorney mayor was not included in the first cycle. And then 2019 was districted elections, which I don't know, I think people are probably not as broadly excited about districted elections as the city races. Um, So it may just have to do with like the the kinds of offices that were Mm
0: up. Another thing you you note, and I hadn't recognized this at all, is that um, the city actually sets a budget amount for the amount of money they will give. Which is a cap to the number of vouchers that could be used. So, in principle, you could like attract many more vouchers than you could get money because it goes above the budget. What, how how often have they gotten close, or have they ever like had to block the amount of money they were going to give because they exceeded the budget amount?
1: They they have, it, they a, have. actually. So, I'm this is another thing that I'm writing about um, currently in the uh, final chapter of the book, which kind of talks about. The practical and legal challenges of the program, and one of the kind of central challenges of any campaign, public campaign finance program is balancing costs. Right, and in Seattle, they made this design choice that, unlike the kind of programs that um, you and others had envisioned, where voters get vouchers and then essentially as many vouchers as you can collect is the amount of money you can raise for your campaign. Um, In Seattle, there's a hard spending cap. Once you qualify for the program, you accept these spending limits for an office, right? So after that spending cap, even if somebody allocates their voucher to you, you don't get to redeem that money. In 2017, I was just writing this, so I have it fresh in my head, um, about it was like almost 30 percent of the vouchers that were used in that cycle were were allocated to candidates that had already maxed out and therefore were never redeemed. So it's a it's a at least in 2017, it was a significant portion of the kind of participation Um, and it it creates raises questions about whether or not that can be kind of demotivating for folks. whether the spending cap should be higher, whether there should be spending caps at all—all all kinds of uh, kind of practical challenges and questions around how these spending caps relate to voter participation in the program.
0: Okay, but I'm now seeing there's actually two separate questions of caps that I hadn't hadn't distinguished in the question. So, so candidates have a spending cap; they agree they're only going to spend a certain amount of money, and so it doesn't make sense to raise money beyond that. But but the city also has a certain amount of money that they... Um, oh,
1: I see. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: have they yeah. ever, like, has there ever been more vouchers than the city has decided to spend?
1: No, that has not okay. happened yet. They have not run out of money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, which is good. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's actually a less... Um, troubling problem because maybe you just want to reduce spending. Maybe like you're, the pro- yeah. one of the problems you see in politics is too much spending. I, it's not my problem, but I understand how people could see that. Um, okay. The other thing that's really interesting is whether there's uh, information about how the practice of collecting vouchers has changed. One challenge to that is that, uh, as you've described, there's been different offices in the three cycles. So we don't have consistent pattern. But one would expect that candidates would get to be good at thinking about the kinds of activities that um, are likely to have people turn out and give them vouchers. So block parties or dances, I don't know, you know, all these things you described that they can do. Is there evidence that, you know, that each cycle we have kind of experts who come in and say, I have a strategy to collect the most vouchers and here's what it would be?
1: So unfortunately, I haven't been able to do the kind of systematic candidate survey that I would like to do to answer that question. Uh, I have interviewed a, um, a good a good number of candidates at this point, and I can tell you that they're, the strategies are quite varied. Um, there is a lot of what you would anticipate and what you would hope from the program, like I'm going to throw a block party. I'm going to have a a barbecue at my house and you can come and give me your vouchers. There's social media solicitations that folks use. Um, And then there's also a good deal of what we call data driven campaigning, where candidates are using some kind of voter list, voter file to target uh, voters, voucher users who are likely to be kind of um, ideologically sympathetic to them and actually use, give them their vouchers. So it's a mix. I don't know the precise percentages. I know that there's, you know, lots of anecdotal evidence from people in Seattle who say like, yeah, I had candidates knocking on my door and I've never seen a city council candidate before in my life. Um, So that's kind of like heartwarming. Um, I don't know, unfortunately, how widespread it is, but it, it does seem like from the candidates that I've talked to, they are using kind of boots on the ground strategies, going door to door, talking to people, trying to collect the vouchers, even if they don't give the vouchers in that particular interaction, they send the vouchers later on, community events, these kinds of things. Um, so it's it's a bit of, of a mixed bag. Um, I think it's an area that we, we should probably know more about than we do at the moment. But yeah.
0: But from a theoretical standpoint, these are all activities that we would think of as pro-democratic activities. I mean, the alternative is that people are sitting in a cubicle calling rich people and asking right. for $1,000 contributions. Now, if they're out there door to door in block parties with you know everybody in their district equally, like a poor area of their district is just as valuable as a rich area of the district, maybe more because the likelihood they're gonna come across somebody willing to give up their vouchers could be higher, um, so so it's pro democratic in this representative sense, and so independent of the funding mechanism. This this is a this is an important uh, uh, outcome. You you introduce an interesting idea in the paper in the in the v- chapter three about the vouchers. Um, to you call it the representation ratio. You define that as the degree to which each group is over or underrepresented in a particular form of participation. And the three forms that you're talking about are the democracy voucher, voting, and cash, or the old system of just giving money. Um, and, uh, and what's significant is uh, the democracy voucher representative representation ratio is higher than the voting ratio in many of these contexts, and, and significantly so, so that this is in some sense a better representation of the public, one way to think about this, than... Than, um, than even the voting. Was that surprising to you, or is this something that seemed like an obvious consequence?
1: It didn't seem like an obvious consequence, in fact. Um, so you're exactly right. And uh, as per- in particular, 2021, we saw um, this somewhat strange thing happened where democracy voucher users actually had higher shares of, let's say, um, younger folks, higher shares of lower income folks than even people voting in the election that cycle. And I I did find it surprising. And I think my hypothesis here is that what's going on is that folks are perhaps using their vouchers in the primary because they're really excited about a candidate. They may be gotten contacted by them. They've had some kind of interaction perhaps um, and they use their vouchers that candidate doesn't advance to the general and they decide not to vote could go something like that Um, but i think that it was surprising because it suggests that there's some element of the voucher program that is getting people more excited or engaged than whatever is happening in the general election and i think that has to be the kinds of candidates that are available to them in the primary
0: seattle I should know this. Does Seattle have a mail-in voting, or is that that's Oregon, not not Washington? Yeah,
1: no, Washington does. Yes, they oh, it vote does. by mail. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so yeah. so everybody votes by mail. They do. Okay, so one reason there could have been a difference, but it doesn't sound like this would be a reason, is that it might be hard to participate on a particular day. But easier to participate over months, uh, which is what the democracy voucher would give you a chance for. But I guess if you can vote for a month, then that's not going to be a good distinction between them. It is yeah. interesting. It was surprising to me. It had this kind of effect. Um, one, w- w- as I read this, and I thought, like, what's the most likely uh, um, part of the story to um, excite opposition? <laughs> um, you know, this isn't a reason I would oppose democracy vouchers, or I think any pro-democratic, pro-small-D democratic person would oppose democracy vouchers, but the people in power might oppose it. Um, There's a pretty dramatic effect on incumbency, right? Um, uh, you saw a lot of turnover in candidates in incumbency. I mean, you, you at some points are very clear about the consequence flowing from the use of vouchers, um, like the increase in participation is because of the vouchers. How confident are you about the consequence for incumbents? Is that because of the vouchers or is that just because, I mean, you know, indirectly we got lots more competition, lots more people that are appealing to different kinds of constituents in their districts. Um, maybe they just don't want to compete like that. But but how would you think about this uh, more generally? Is this just going to be a consequence, which might be a reason why term limits people would like this too?
1: Um, so I I'm pretty confident that this incumbency effect or like the decreased incumbency advantage that we're seeing in Seattle is a result of the program. Um, And the reason I'm convinced of that linkage is because the study that I cite uh, for that uh, particular statistic is one in which uh, a couple of economists compare Seattle to a bunch of cities in Washington and to California. um, And by comparing them, comparing Seattle to these different cities over the same Um, time period, they're able to kind of suss out whether or not it was the program or something else that was going on across all of these places. Um, And so it's really Seattle. And as an outlier here, we have um, the rate at which incumbents decide to um, run for office, decrease um, much faster than other places. I mean, it's, it's, I have the statistics in the Paper and text right in front of me. Um, it goes from uh, 78% of incumbents deciding to run in Seattle to 44% um, on average. It's like, yeah, it's huge. It's a 30 percentage points. You never get effects that big. Will this play out if this program becomes portable? That in, a, in essence, it becomes, um, you know, some, some people have framed public campaign financing as like an incumbent protection program, and the voucher program seems to really not be that. I think it might. Um, I think it's likely to because it, it it enables all kinds of people to run for local office. Um, and there are, ma- there are just many more candidates now and many more quality challengers who are making it into the general election and giving incumbents a run for their money, literally. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing overall. There's more competition. We're bringing in more people as candidates. But uh, the powers that be, uh, when we're talking about, like, d- This program potentially making its way to other municipalities are going to see this and think, you know, well, I don't want a public campaign finance system (laughs) that's going to make it harder for me to, you know, win re election. I want the matching program or something like that. So it is. Do we see similar effects
0: with matching? Is there any evidence? Is there any comparison there?
1: Um, So I know folks are working on it. Uh, We don't have direct comparisons now. Uh, My guess is that we're not going to see the same kind of it maybe not affect sizes like we do with the voucher program um and and because of this like network effect that we've already talked about with the with the voucher program
0: mm-hmm. um and, and then one final bit just reporting on what's happened um uh it's been a pretty significant effect in the people the actual candidates who win or at least the actual candidates who win are significantly different from what they were before the voucher system, whether it's because of the voucher system or not. And the two categories that are pretty significant, you say the program is associated with large increases of the percentage of people of color and women among winning, winning candidates in Seattle, and a su- substantial decrease in the age of the average winning candidate. So we're getting younger, more diverse candidates, or as we said at the very top, a picture that's more accurately representative of the actual public than was produced in the older system. Um, again, very pro-democratic. Okay, I want to talk uh, just at the end here a little bit about um, some questions and where we're going from here. In Seattle, do we see a growing organized opposition? I mean, I know there was a constitutional opposition, which I was part of the litigation to try to defend the uh, voucher system uh, organized by right-wing libertarian think tank. And But beyond that, do you see like politicians beginning to say, let's abolish the voucher system because it's... Welfare for politicians, or something like that?
1: Um, so, not yet. They have, they're in the midst of their districted city council elections, which um, could end up really changing the composition of the city council depending on how things go. Um, Seattle is in the midst of very crises that are common to major cities across the U.S. right now. So, housing affordability and homelessness and the drug crisis. Um, And so the city council candidates this election cycle are very very focused on these issues. Um, And that's important because I think that what we know from other public campaign finance systems is that when times are tough, when budgets are tight, the thing that looks the most um, kind of superfluous is the public campaign finance system, right? Why do we need to fund democracy? Let's fund schools, right? Why do we need to fund elections? Why We need to fund roads or whatever. Um, so it becomes kind of a surplus budget item. And I think with the kind of tenor of, of the, the debates are, that are going on in Seattle right now, there's might we might end up having a council that's less uh, pro-democracy vouchers, although there almost all using the program. So, <laughs> um, the candidates to cycle, um, but it will be interesting to see how that plays out because they, Seattle does have a number of issues, big citywide issues that they have to deal with. Um, outside of that, I have not seen or heard of any organized opposition, the organized opposition that had, uh, well, okay, I'll take it back. The, um, Chamber of Commerce in, in Seattle has been uh, doing some polling and they, they haven't been active in the, uh, they were not as active in the 2020, 2021 election. It will be interesting to see if they decide to um, take a stance when the program comes up for reauthorization in the next year or two. I haven't heard of anything very organized, but it's possible that they have something in the
0: works. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to see what the campaign message would be um, because all the things they would be defending and all the things they would be attacking see, would seem to be consonant with democracy. Um, but anyway, that'll be interesting to see if it happens. One question that these chapters didn't address, but which you teased me with in the this, in this yeah. sense of making Uh-oh. me extremely excited um, about, um, was the idea that we saw evidence that people who used vouchers actually voted more, that turnout was higher. Mm-hmm. Um, is that mm-hmm. something that the data bear uh, bears out?
1: So, <laughs> this is like the, the million dollar question and everybody wants to know the answer. And essentially like from a methodological standpoint, it's basically impossible to answer without some buy-in from some, we need some randomization essentially. And it's, it's very, it's hard to get that when program administrators are committed to equity. That said, we've my co-author and I have run many regressions um, looking at the relationship between voucher usage and voting. And in a model where you have voucher usage, usage as a predictor of voting in the general, voucher usage is a very significant predictor of voting um, above and beyond all of the other things we know will predict voting, like race, class, gender, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we, there's good descriptive evidence that yes, uh, voucher usage kind of also uh, increases voting. Having a really kind of cohesive causal story about that is gonna be hard to pull together, but I, I think there's there might be a relationship there.
0: Hard to pull together just because you're you would have to intervene in an actual election process to make it sufficiently robust from a method perspective?
1: Right. So what I mean, what we would really want to do, ideally, and we tried to convince the people in Seattle to let us do this. And they laughed at us. (laughs) We're like, can we please randomize vouchers, Uh, you know, and like a a small subset of the city doesn't have to be the whole city. Right. So that we have like some variation. Some people got the vouchers and some people didn't. And then we can compare them. Uh On average, they should be the same. Um, and the program and administrators were like, we're, you know, (laughs) shocked you would even ask us that, Jen, because you know that we're committed to equity. (laughs) Um, but we, you know, we had to ask. Um, the other way you could do it is if you could find some, uh, let's say random way to increase voucher usage among, so you could somehow randomly incentivize voucher usage, um, and actually get. Uh, some effect there, then you could identify the effect of voucher usage on voting. Uh, but that would require like a, a big field a randomized field experiment. That so far nobody's given me money for. Again, got to go back and do this, the interviews and the and the experiment. But um, thus far, we haven't we don't have that kind of uh, infrastructure to do something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so vouchers happened in Seattle. Um, Oakland just voted for vouchers. Uh, LA is considering it. Where where do you think it's going to happen next?
1: I mean, I'm I'm optimistic about LA actually making a move. I will say I don't know if you've been following Oakland, um, but this this kind of public campaign financing is a political football thing. Happened there, the mayor kind of gutted the program. Um, in the budget. Um, so it's now kind of on hold because the the mayor's budget just didn't have any funding for the program. So it's not going to be um, rolled out uh, in 2024 as anticipated, unfortunately. Um, so we'll have to see if they come up with the, the money for that um, in the future. I will say broadly, um, I don't know of any other places considering it right now outside of I mean municip- municipalities outside of Oakland LA and San Diego County but I think that uh, for better or worse the most momentum for the program is at the is at the local level so city and county governments are the ones that are kind of really seriously considering this I haven't heard uh, recently of any um, organized efforts at like a statewide program or you know the national, National program seems to be off the
0: table for the moment, right? Um, although John Sarbanes, who has been the architect of so much reform in the For the uh, For the People Act, uh, which included matching funds, but I was excited to see that he also included a pilot program for vouchers in that system. If you, you know, were talking to John Sarbanes, I could channel, you know, Jen to, to Sarbanes, <laughs> Jen to John. Um, um, <laughs> uh, what would you say to him about what that voucher program part pilot should look like, and whether he should just dump the um, the matching fund and and go full force for the vouchers?
1: I mean, those are those are two separate, very different questions. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I'm currently of the opinion that any form of public campaign financing program is better than none, and so I would take matching relative to nothing. Uh, I do think vouchers are. Probably going to turn out to have better kind of pro democratic outcomes than the matching systems. I that's my hunch. Um, what would I tell uh, Sarbanes? I would say you know we can we can start small and demonstrate the efficacy of this program. If you know a couple of things have to happen. First of all, the voucher pilot has to be funded at a level that makes it realistic for candidates to buy into it. Um, so if you know, if they were going to do it, if they wanted to do it in particular um, state context, that would be a great way to kind of demonstrate the, the efficacy of the program. We would need to know like how much do races for house on average cost in the state. So let's, you know, don't pick Alaska um, and, and then try to get something up and running. And I think, you know, that would be kind of a compelling demonstration of what the program can do because Seattle is, at the end of the day, it's not very diverse um, and it hasn't been tried in a place that is like really, truly very kind of racially, economically diverse. Um, And I think that it could potentially be a game game changer for participation in a place where it has the power to like grow in, in that way.
0: Do you have a sense of how big it would have to be to be meaningful?
1: How big it would have to be I mean I think that even if we had a couple of states buy into it or a couple of districts buy into it and and there were districts that let's say are really they look like America, right We have a couple in Texas, we have a couple in California, we have a couple in New York, there we can really show the potential of the program because Seattle is majority white city still. And so even though it's bringing in more people of color, there's kind of a limit to how much they can do in terms of growing the diversity of the donor pool there. If we look at a place like New York or San Francisco, there might be more opportunities to bring in folks who are really just traditionally kind of excluded from that system. Seattle's also a pretty wealthy city on average um, compared to other places. So I think a couple of uh, districts um would give us enough data points to at least say like okay this is what this is what donors look like before this is what they look like after this is how much participation increased and this is how much it cost right and if you are a (laughs) pro-democratic elected official i think that should be compelling i you know it's not always not compelling for everyone anymore
0: yeah that would be a wonderful experiment to see launched Jennifer, thank you so much for talking to us and uh, and especially thank you for your work. I feel like, you know, a deadbeat dad who like planted a seed of this idea <laughs> many, many years ago and, <laughs> and then it have just gone on and then I get to come back and see a whole forest has grown. And this is really wonderful. Um, oh. uh, it's really fantastic that you've helped people understand um, the strengths and some of the weaknesses that um, might help guide reform. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. that has been really fun.
0: This has been the fifth episode of the fifth season of the podcast, Another Way. These podcasts produced by Equal Citizens are made by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. You can find more about Equal Citizens at equalcitizens.us. Give us your thoughts, your feedback, and if you must, give us your money. It's okay, we'll take it. Just click the red button on the donate Page of equalcitizens.us, and you can assure we have the resources we need to continue to make these podcasts possible. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for episode six, another episode in the overturned tables part of this conversation and engaging with Nick Stephanopoulos about the theory of representativeness more generally.